My name is Terry Armenta, and I am the founder of Forensic Science Academy, located in Southern California. And while you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, hello, Glenn. Uh, have you been hello, having Eric. a good week? I have. So I, I know we joked about it last time, but yeah. did you watch The Tiger King? I did not. I, I can't. I, everyone's talking oh, about it. It seems like it's the big thing. My brother even said, hey, Joel McHale like hosted like an extra new oh, episode. that's what I was going to tell you. That's, and that's I love a- Joel McHale. The Soup was like my favorite show. And I just during this lockdown, I can't spend time with those people. I just okay. Can't. Now, do you know the name of the Joel, Ma- Joel McHale review show? This review episode, like you, like a talk soup approach. I uh, oh, I didn't, I didn't catch that. What was the name of it? The Tiger King and I. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I love uh, Joel McHale. He is just so clever. I've seen him on multiple interviews yeah. and improv stuff. Uh, he, he really is just—he's a funny person, off the cuff funny it's not not that he has good writers he is just a funny legitimately the thoughts that come out of his head are just great well and and i mean even after the soup ended a few years back which was i was just torn up when that when that went off the air i'll still go back and look on like daily motion or some of these not youtube but kind of lesser youtube like sites still have old episodes of the soup that you can find and uh, we'll just go back and through and watch some of these old ones because they are just, oh my goodness, I, I love that show so much. But I wanted to share another kind of, I don't know, happy thing. I watched Terminator 2, Judgment Day with the kids a few days ago. Excellent movie. I love that movie. Excellent Glenn, movie. what's your favorite part of Terminator 2? There's lots of things to pick from, but what's your favorite part? Oh, you know, minor stuff. Yeah. But Robert Patrick is just so fantastic. He is so great. And like one of the scenes where he just turns his head and cocks his head a little bit, yeah. or when he gets shot with the weapon, how he reacts. The like the actual look of surprise on his face when like the big shell goes in and like blows up in his body, and he split into you know this creature that's kind of screeching, and the actual look of shock on his face, like oh, I can be damaged. Uh, little those little tiny things that Robert Patrick does throughout the role, I really really love. I, I read somewhere that he he physically tried to never blink while being filmed, uh, as a, just a, a way to even make himself feel more robotic. And I think it even it's really rare that you can see a scene in that movie where he blinks. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, I'll add one more thing. When he shapeshifts and he passes through the bars, yeah. But he forgets the baton and he gets stuck. The gun, yeah. Or whatever, right? Yeah, it's it's a one second, two second cutaway shot, but it's just so great. It it's that kind of James Cameron detail that I just, I just absolutely love. So all six of us are watching, my wife and I, and the four kids, and my uh, youngest had never seen Terminator One, right? So mm-hmm. we watched it with all the with the other three kids a couple years ago, uh, but uh, she was either not there or had fallen asleep already or something. So I gave her kind of the quick rundown of. This is what happens in Terminator 1. You don't, you don't really need to see it to see Terminator 2, but this is just kind of the basics. You know, robots. Do you fast forward through the sex scene in Terminator 1 with your kids? Um, I don't remember. I think we, I think generally we, my, you know, my wife just yells, close your eyes, and then everyone just closes their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful American sexual repression. Thank exactly. you. Okay. So anyway, we'll explain all this, right? And the movie starts. 
You got Arnold Schwarzenegger, Robert Patrick coming back, uh, back in time to the early nineties. And you got Arnold Schwarzenegger gets all his clothes from the bikers and Robert Patrick gets the cop uniform and they're both looking for the kid. Right. And there's that great scene in the mall where they're both yep. kind of closing in on him and in the, the back, back corridor. Exactly. And then one yeah. comes around this way and the other comes around this way and the kids kind of back and forth. And then you know, there's this moment of it, the way it was filmed was like, you, you didn't know which was the good guy, which was the bad guy. However, right. in all the promotional material, everybody knew going into after seeing all the trailers that Arnold Schwarzenegger was the good guy this time. Everybody knew that. So my new favorite part of this movie is watching it with my youngest, who actually turns uh, 13 tomorrow. She out loud says, the police officer is the bad guy? Mm. And then says, they're both robots? <laughs> it was it was just delightful. I, I I was smiling for the rest of the night because it was just this moment of like how it should have been for everyone else. This like yeah. oh my god, this shocking moment. But uh, so uh, anyway. I actually hadn't seen any of the trailers. Oh no, so I didn't know this, and so I actually can appreciate that moment. I had I had no idea. I assumed that they were both Terminators coming. I I thought it was a typical sequel. Well, now there have to be two bad guys going after him. So oh. I didn't know he was a good guy. So you thought you thought they were both bad guys, okay? Yeah. Well, I mean, think of think about you had Alien, and yeah. then what was Aliens? Just more of Alien. So True. this was Terminator right. and Terminator Two, which was also James Cameron Alien. So I just thought it was more, more Terminators. Terminators. So I thought they had to now fight multiple Terminators. Oh, uh, that's great. That's great. Uh, it, that's uh, anyway. That's that's my new favorite moment from Terminator Two. It's. Uh, oh. <laughs> Is is hearing my daughter just moment of surprise and realization as uh, as the movie went on. Anyway, she thoroughly enjoyed the rest of it as well, and and uh, and that was a that was a great movie night. Yeah, this was another movie I saw in the theaters uh, about a week before it came out. We had a special employee screening for it at the movie theater. Got it. And, and I hadn't seen anything before that. I was I was. I was... <laughs> A little younger, I, I wasn't in in working at the movie theater age quite yet at that point. But uh, I think now time to resume our discussion of the Massachusetts crime scandals and the Netflix series, How to Fix a Drug Scandal. You yes. ready for this? Yeah. So we won't bother recapping. Just go back and listen to last week's episode if you to get caught up. But where we left off last time, we had talked about Sonia Farak, who was stealing drugs in some of those issues. And what safeguards do crime labs have in place so that people don't effectively steal drugs? And we talked about some of those concerns. But this episode, we're going to talk about now the other side of this, the Annie Dukin part, which is really more of a quality assurance issue. And right. then the potential fallout and cover up that came allegedly from, uh, from the AG's office, the uh, the attorney general in Massachusetts. So maybe it seemed a little out of order because this actually all happened just a few months, about six months or so before the whole Sonia Farrakh uh, issue happened. This yes. is now about, you know, fall or so of 2012. So uh, Annie Dukin is a, again, drug chemist with the, the crime lab there in Massachusetts, but in the one in the Boston area. Yes. And both of these laboratories were, if I recall, they were part of the public health department. They were not accredited and they weren't like part of the state police or anything or local police departments. But they they were they were drug labs. But they were not I – mean, they had routine submitters from law enforcement agencies. Right. But I, I think they're part of the, the public health department. 
Now, th- this is Department of Public Health. That's different than the Massachusetts State Police Crime Lab. I, I, yes. I'm, I'm a little confused on exact details, but it seems like these are two separate labs, uh, both funded by the state of Massachusetts to do slightly different things. Yeah. Eventually, after all this pans out, I, my understanding is the Massachusetts State Police and ends up taking control of these laboratories and having to accredit them. But neither of these labs are accredited and neither of these were run by – well, we're not making a point that law being run by law enforcement you know, is necessarily good or bad. The uh, point here being is that they weren't accredited and they weren't part of a um, – if you will, an already accepted and established laboratory testing system. Uh, but it's kind of linking back to the last episode, Sonia Farrakh had actually started at this same lab that Annie Dukin's at in the Boston area, but had requested right. a transfer out to, to Amherst. Uh, so they even worked together for, for a little while. Yeah, and the, um, the, the, the Boston lab handled all of the eastern half of Massachusetts and all the Boston metro area. The western lab handled sort of all the rural western part of Massachusetts. I think it's about an hour west of Worcester, which is kind of about an hour west of Boston. So you're looking at the literally the western half of the state. Right. Good pronunciation there on Worcester. Thanks, man. <laughs> so uh, in 2012, someone kind of finally gets around to asking – well, why is Annie Dukan doing four times the work as of anyone else? She's a machine. She's you know known for being the first one there at work, crack of dawn, uh, is the last to leave after sunset every day, and management loves her productivity. And there's a interview with with again with James Connolly, who is the deputy division commander for forensic services, or, or was at the time, where he says you know, if someone's doing four times the work of literally everyone else, that's someone to talk to. I mean, if for nothing else to ask, well, how are you doing this? I want to replicate you with everyone else. So I had this, Eric. I mean, this, yeah. this was something that I had in my, in my unit. I had a drug chemist who did twice or three times the work as everyone else and a couple of other analysts who were about twice. But I have one analyst who was clearly doing more than everyone, routine every month. Yep. And it was the same thing. This all and it came out around the same time I became supervisor and this whole Dukin thing. Of course, I was always like, oh, my God, please, please let it be legitimate. But I review all of her casework, her notes and everything. Everything was legit. And but it was exactly the same thing. So my next step was to send my trainees to go and sit with her. Now, I mean, the trainees going through drug chemistry to sit with her and figure out learn how she's so quick you know how quickly doing going through these cases and try to emulate that and she just had this kind of efficiency she you know batched things together i mean she worked very carefully she was really uh, efficient at what she did she was really good at batching the same kinds of drugs together and she was just efficient i mean she was efficient in all aspects yeah. of her life but she was just a workhorse but i always had this please let it be legitimate kind of fear. I mean, it was always, <laughs> always so I hated, it, it really was a constant fear of mine that, oh no, this, if there's going to be a scandal in our lab, it's going to be in drug chemistry. And of course, the supervisor will be the first one under the magnifying glass. How did you not know? No, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about because I mean, I had a coworker back in Arizona that, was doing two, three, four times the work of everyone else uh, in latent prints. And 
you know, main that was mainly had to do with processing and you know you same kind of thing you'd kind of worry you'd wonder but you could also worry see, wonder that's a good word you worry wonder but you could also kind of see the photos right the the, the yeah the there, photographs there's from the process objective evidence yes right that, i mean where she's actually taking photos of of everything i i think it was just that that you know most of the Many of the other examiners just spent a lot more time socializing in, instead of being <laughs> as productive as she was. She was, yeah, absolutely a workhorse, but a very good uh, examiner as well. So uh, James Connolly does he begins this investigation, and he's initially told that the supervisors had it all taken care of. Right, no problem. We're on. We've we've been on this. It's everything's fine. But he quickly he soon finds out that other analysts have been complaining about her for years. Not balancing her scales, not doing quality checks. These other analysts had told the supervisors, but they did nothing about it. Yeah, and, th- and those kinds of things aren't going to really take that much time. And that's not that's not going to make or break someone being double or triple or quadruple. I always I thought that was a little odd, but okay. Yeah, you know, I think it was, it was maybe in retrospect that you you kind of see that there have been complaints and mm-hmm. um, uh, and and maybe more should have been done uh, earlier on. Well. Uh, some officers meet with her at her house to ask about all this, and it doesn't take long through that interview before she confesses to dry labbing. So dry labbing, um, essentially she would take a handful of evidence uh, from different cases, or maybe from the same case, but but uh, different bags of drug evidence, kind of visually take a look at all of them, go, okay, these are all about the same look, run the test on one of those one of those samples, get positive results, and then just fill in the paperwork that everything else was positive for that drug as well. Write up all her reports and ship them all out. But most of the samples in that group that she had tested didn't actually have uh, results, didn't, didn't actually consist of the drug being put onto the machine for any kind of test. Yeah, and that's the part that really, of course, surprises me because, I mean, I have to see their procedures. I mean, if an analyst in my lab had done that, I would know because there were no data. There's no chromatograms. There's no mass spec. So there's no data. But it doesn't look like they were required to have their data for their samples in the case file. looks like they just had a form and they fill out the form, yes, I did the test. So, I mean, that's a fairly legit, um, legitimately big hole in their process, their their review process that could easily have been caught if they were required to attach the, the raw data. Right, because if you, you, if you have to you run the sample on the chromatograph, you have to print out and include that graph in the case notes, if it's missing, then there's a problem. Or the other really option is you just make copies of it to include in multiple different cases. But that also is, can be, you know, noticed fairly easily. Yeah, I mean, they're all going to have the same runtime, same run date, and there's, I mean, there's going to be problems right away. They, each one needs to be a unique run that obviously would stand out if you're reviewing the case because you'll be looking at the case number and the the name of the 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 run and the basically the vial that'll that'll be on there. V-I-L-E, Eric. <laughs> V-I-L-E, right. Uh, yeah, past, past episode joke. Uh, so, I mean, you talked last week about how, in your experience, you've seen lots of different agencies out there that don't all have random drug testing for all their analysts that handle and test drugs or you know, other aspects of the lab. 
do you see this kind of thing uh, frequently out there where labs are doing this kind of drug chemistry but not printing out or saving or including the chromatograph in the case notes? Well, funny you should say that <laughs> because uh, I'll, I'll give a quick overview here. When I first became drug chemistry supervisor, there were a number of things I looked at and was a little surprised in their practices. It, it was exactly this kind of thing. Like, why don't you include this in the case file? Oh, we don't need to. Uh, the one, for example, was that they w they didn't include their standard reference mass spec. That was one that I noticed right away. So every time that they made an identification, it was like not having the known exemplars in the file. And I said, well, why would you not include that? Well, we know what methamphetamine looks like. I, I get that, but this is for discovery. This is for you know the, the these data are not just for you; it's for anyone reviewing the case. Wouldn't you include the standard that you use to compare against? And they didn't. They didn't think they they needed to. And I said, "Well, we're going to make that change." And I had them include that because I wanted it to be clear which standard they were using. What was the most recent standard that was the standard compared against? Because, you know, they might use a certain standard for a week or several days or even months, depending on the stability of the standard. And they wouldn't always, I mean, in theory, they could always go back at some point in time to find the standard that, that would have been applicable at the time of the run. But it, right. it just didn't, didn't make any sense to me. So there are little things like that. Little might as well include it. Might as well include it of, in the case yes. documentation right now rather than have right. to go find it if it ever comes up for case for trial. Right. And if there was a problem with the most current standard, for example, you would want to know that and that should be clear right away if it was run under different conditions or the sensitivity of the instrument. All these little things that could happen and did happen with instrument sensitivity and quirks. So I was a big fan of, no, no, everything associated with this case will ne needs to be in this case file. So we don't have to go looking for it later so it doesn't get lost later. We will have it. It will be part of the case record. So that was one of the first things I instituted. And I don't know about other labs, but I, I – well, that's not true. I do know about it. Other labs were very hit and miss about what they would include. It was one of the things I would look at when I go to the other laboratories and say, show me your case files. What kind of things do you put in your case files? And I can tell you, I won't call anyone out, but yeah, there are many drug labs around the United States that don't necessarily include a lot of what I would think would be critical data so that you, so that you could pick up a case at any point in time and know what was done, what the data were, and do a comparison from the case data right there. Not every drug lab does that. So I'm not a big fan of this form approach of agencies that don't include all the data that are necessary for the examination, whether it's drug chemistry, DNA, or latent fingerprints. You should have your latents, your knowns, your annotations, and all of your handwritten notes, bench notes. It should all be in the case record. I want to say obviously, but it, it obviously isn't obvious because it's it's so frequently you know, not included or too often not included. Uh, so with Andy Dukin, it this is really kind of the, the crux of the story. It is she was dry labbing, not actually doing the work for all of this, uh, all these cases so she could get a lot of stuff out the door, look really good in the eyes of her management, look really good in the eyes of the attorneys that she's dealing with. But there isn't all the kind of drama and, and part of the story that we went into last week with, uh, you know, the progression that Sonia Farrakh uh, had. So uh, just kind of as a, 
just a curiosity, what what other situations similar to this you know, have come up that we can kind of compare this to? Yeah, for me, again, this is very personal. Here in Minnesota, we had a drug lab scan, another one. I mean, last episode, I talked about our assistant lab director who was like Sonia Farrat stealing drugs and going through that. But here in Minnesota, we had a little bit of a scandal in our St. Paul Police Department drug lab. Those technicians, they were doing drug chemistry. Uh, they were doing fingerprints. They were doing some footwear. They may have even been doing some crime scene stuff. They were kind of doing a lot of different things, but basically fingerprints and drug analysis. And they had been operating 30 years or so doing drug examinations. And never in 30 years had defense ever really questioned this their practices. Yeah, <laughs> this I, I, is insane to me. Go ahead. I, I, know. Know, I know those stories, so go ahead. Yeah, I know. And a good friend of mine by the name of Christine Funk, She's a, she was a local defense attorney. She moved away. She came back. I think she's now doing some consultation work and some, some private work. But she was a local defense attorney who, who was kind of a DNA expert in, in, the, in the state and sort of well-known for – giving our DNA analysts a really tough time on the stand. She was a really good defense attorney, one of those who just asks really good questions. She and another attorney here, the two, the two received a drug case, and they went in and started asking some real basic questions of, our drug chem, of the drug chemist in St. Paul and asked them, Hey, uh, you know, what sort of standards do you run? How often do you run standards? And, you know, show us your procedures. Show us your, your SOPs. And, you know, they started getting answers like, well, we don't have SOPs. Well, we don't do these kinds of things. We don't do these checks. Well, we don't have a training manual. We don't have a validation study. We don't have this. We don't have that. And they were shocked at the answers that they were getting. And, you know, like some of the things were just – uh, unbelievable to me as as a chemist they for example the they were running case after case after case without blanks in between this is the one that really got me i yeah <laughs> i it, just it, couldn't believe it now what they did was they have really run long time sorry they had really long run times and they would ramp up the temperature afterwards the idea is that it would burn anything off the column if it was stuck in there but that's not necessarily the best way to go about doing it, and you run blanks to ensure that, in fact, nothing did get hung up in the column. That's so, how you check to see that nothing got hung up. So, if anyone listeners out there that does don't you know don't have a chemistry background, uh, you're basically running the sample through the machine. We'll kind of get into the, all the details of how it works, but you know you get these these peaks on the graph showing you know here is the sample, and then the 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 arrangement of the peaks, you know, where it peaks at what, what, um, and when it peaks as it goes through the sample, it gives a little kind of chemical fingerprint so you can figure out what chemical this is. The idea with the blank, you want to then run a, after doing that for a sample, run a blank through it so that at you know, some point you've kind of washed through all the previous sample and now you have this baseline of, okay, now I'm getting nothing, no chemical coming through. So now I can put the next chemical through, and that ensures that nothing of the last one came through this time. Yeah, it's the objective evidence, and that's the phrase in accreditation. It's the objective evidence that you're ready for your next sample to be run. And you know there are certain drugs, known drugs, that can get hung up on inside of an instrument. I mean, especially really fatty ones and heavy THC or some of the things in TH or 
some some of the materials that you'll find THC in, LSD, certain really big chemicals can get hung up and uh, leach out in 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 subsequent samples. So this is just base like basic chemistry right, 101. This is, this is not new technology. This is like when the <laughs> instrument was invented, they figured this stuff out. Oh, now funny you should say this. And <laughs> now I sat through these tri- I sat through these hearings. So they end up having this big Basically, what we call in Minnesota Fry Mac hearing. It's a Fry hearing, but it's not about the general acceptance of the chemistry. It's about how it was applied in this case. And I sat through those hearings, by the way, and they were absolutely fascinating. I had those transcripts. They're scary, but Eric, I don't know. If, I don't know if you've talked about this, but funny you should say from the history of the instrument. One of the questions they're asked is. How long has this technology been around? How long has the GCMS been around? Have I told you this before? I don't remember this part of the story, no. Okay. So on the stand, under oath, one of the chemists is asked, how long has this GCMS technology been around? That'd be gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. Yes. How long has it been around? And her answer was thousands of years. I I I don't think my flo- my jaw has ever hit the floor so hard but then she quickly corrected herself. Oh, hundreds of oh, years. Oh, uh- I I was I was blown away. So so what Jesus had a gas chromatograph like back in the time like the day almost and- there she just one more step tens of years than that, than that would have been uh, it's. I mean, I mean, Hundreds this technology is 1950s, and yeah. you know, so right. Uh, I, I, I couldn't believe it. So afterwards, I went out to dinner. And again, they were friends of mine. These attorneys. So I went out afterwards and asked them, "How did you know to ask that question? How, how on earth did you know that that was going to be her answer?" And Christine looked at me and said, "Glenn, you know how I knew? I asked her that in pretrial, and that was her answer then." And I went, oh my god, <laughs> oh my god! So I, 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 I could, I couldn't believe it. But it was just, well, I, pardon the language, shit show after shit show after shit show. And they brought in Jay Siegel and Max Hauk and other people, sort of known chemists and forensic scientists who just tore this laboratory apart. I mean, I've got a whole, I could go on forever about what I saw, but I mean, this was a classic example of a laboratory being run by, and the, the, quite literally, the the lab director was a sergeant who could not pronounce gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. He did, didn't know how to spell it, didn't really know what it was, and he was in charge of running a laboratory. Right. And did and had zero science to really back this up. And and every time the people and the, uh, this is a real sad case where the people that work there have wanted to go through accreditation. They had brought these things up before. They had brought this up to their sergeant and lieutenant before, and they were sort of shot down and said, "You don't need it. We've been doing this for thirty years. Why do we need this accreditation? We don't need that to get into court. So we're good." And you, and, and and they were totally backed up. Because, uh, and and totally right in in saying in I mean obviously they're wrong but totally right in in their in their minds because no one had ever asked a single question. Correct. Yep. And the first time that they scratched the surface, uh, and it it got I mean it got pretty bad. They did a the defense did a very good job of every time that the forensic scientists on the witness stand would say, "Look, I brought this to my superior." 
here's who I told this to. The next thing they would do is turn around and subpoena the sergeant. Right. And then the lieutenant. And then the captain. At some point, they even started asking questions. We found out that after we had come into your laboratory and had this pretrial with you forensic scientists, isn't it true that the chief sent around uh, an email basically saying the defense will never be allowed to come into our laboratory again and investigate and talk to any of you? And if you ever hear from – and which was true. I mean they sent this, this email around basically saying you cannot talk to defense ever again. And that all came out in the in the hearing. It 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 looked so terrible that for the first I've never seen this before. The chief once his name was like in the papers and on the front page and being cited, you know, in testimony. Right. He didn't even wait for the judge to have a resolution. He just shut the whole thing down. He just shut the whole lab down. Didn't even wait for them. Just said, "Okay, we're done." And, of course, all those drugs had to come to the state lab. Right. And that's right around the time that I was becoming supervisor over there. So That's just – it's so, it's it, so it, upsetting. It was crazy. I mean you obviously have the you know, the police management from the chief on down not, not, not running the lab properly. You have the analysts there not doing the work properly, but you know, maybe partially because – you know they don't they don't know how to do the work properly they don't know what they're oh, there doing was definitely wrong. that part of it too yeah but I mean, it, also the defense attorneys not doing their job for yep. 30 years of asking some basic questions they they can they that's one of the things when they start their talk off with shame on us i mean it's the one of the first things that they Absolutely. say right in in their talk and they they fully acknowledge shame on us for not having investigated this before I mean, so um, this isn't it, this isn't I mean just from what you described there this isn't like super hard to discover stuff I mean just asking hey show me your your protocols you, you know describe how you do the, the yes. work just the most absolute basic level stuff just sitting there for 30 years for someone to find and, and it takes that long No I I legitimately think that drug chemistry as a whole and look at the NAS report look at the PCAST report look at uh, kind of getting a pass they've not really been taken to task and uh, you know for the most part i suspect what they're doing is fairly good but i do think that they will need the data to be able to back that up now little little side note the our laboratory ended up of course retesting many many cases so the, the judge said well look can't this stuff just be retested? Can't we send it to a neutral laboratory, the state lab, and can't they retest all these cases? And defense argued, well, no, because we don't know what happened to it when it was in the St. Paul drug chemistry lab. Yeah. And this is very similar to the Sonia Farak thing is that, well, because she was high, we don't know if she was contaminating the stuff. Or, so all this evidence is tainted and considered unreliable. So the defense attorneys in St. Paul made a very similar argument of, well, even if you send it to the, the state lab and they say – yeah, there's cocaine here. How do we know that didn't get contaminated, you know, uh, during storage or because of you know uh, poor practices and this and that? And the judge kind of said, "No, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow it. We're anything if if you still want to take it forward, it needs to be retested at the state lab." So we ended up doing all the retests, and out of hundreds of cases and items we retested, I think we ended up finding two or three errors. And when I say errors, I think one of them was legitimately like misidentified. And then I think we ended up finding more drugs that they missed 
you know, in, in more trace amounts. Right. And then there was, I think, more of a marginal call or so. You know, one of the analysts said that they wouldn't have called it one of those sorts of things, that they called it heroin and our people said, no, we probably wouldn't call it that. So, I mean, for hundreds and hundreds of cases that we looked at, a fairly low rate. I mean, I mean, for all the sloppy practices that they had, kind of shows that it's a fairly robust technique and that it's kind of hard to get it wrong and they really didn't get it wrong and and i think i mean part of that also and probably going into the judge's decision was that for the actual analyst at saint paul there wasn't necessarily you know bad faith on their part in doing the test they were they were doing it as they were trained to do it yeah that's and true. and also not high af <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, they they were not high. That, that, Although that testimony, I tell you, uh, <laughs> thousands, thousands of, years. of years. Again, if you're not a chemist listening to the show, or uh, it'd be like saying, you know, how long have rockets, right, or automobiles been around? Thousands. Yeah, how of long years. has the right the, the you know right? How long has an automobile been around? Yeah. Just summarize that any the Annie Dukin issue is about lack of lack of quality control. Lack of standards, lack of accreditation. When the Andy Dukin scandal hits, you know, it's big and it drops huge and it is immediately considered as affecting literally thousands of cases. I, I think, uh, you know, as, tens a, of thousands. as a stark contrast, oh yeah, tens of thousands. As a stark contrast to Sonia Farrakh, when that comes out a few months later, is initially the AG's office tries to limit it to just two cases. This is immediately obvious that it's affecting tens of thousands of cases. Uh, so there's a, a district attorney that they interview in this show named, and I love this name, uh, George Papacristos. <laughs> That's just a fun name to say. <laughs> he finds out that one of the cases that he had prosecuted included work uh, performed by Andy Dukin. So he uh, calls up the defense attorney that was on the other side of that trial, goes into court, asks that the defendant be released pending further investigation, maybe another retrial. As part of the investigation, Andy Dukin's emails uh, get looked into. As anyone who works for the government knows, anything that you send in your emails uh, is owned by the government and can be uh, you know, possibly subject to review by attorneys uh, through Netflix, through a request for information. Uh, so those get pulled up. And there's there's some curious stuff going on in the emails. First thing that's immediately obvious is her bias towards the prosecution. How she is constantly seeking how best to help prosecutors get convictions. How to get those bad guys. Prosecutors asking her for positive results. Positive you know, drug results uh, in cases. There's you know stuff that comes out that she had been talking to people in her lab saying that she was working towards an advanced degree through Harvard Night School, but that was all fake. She was even forging emails to George Papakristos, seemingly from other people in the, in the government, saying, oh, you Annie, you need to get a boyfriend now that you're divorced. And her writing back, basically, it's her on both sides, but also, you know, CCing George Papakristos that, uh, oh, I'm just looking for this kind of guy and kind of flirting with him. So there's kind of two parts here. First of all, the whole bias side of her being really, just really pushing hard to be on the prosecutor's team. And then this weird kind of flirting thing, which eventually leads to uh, Papa Christos resigning as a DA and becoming a defense attorney. Yeah. So what did you think of that? I mean, I'm thinking back to all the emails I sent <laughs> in my career as a forensic <laughs> scientist. 
And then all the interactions, you know, I had over the years and, you know, sometimes asking questions about, all right, what are we looking for in this, in this case? Which piece of evidence is the, is the key one to, to analyze? If I find his fingerprints on this, it doesn't matter. But if I find it on this, that's probative. And various interactions where sometimes I would just get no response from the prosecutor and kind of have to, you know, be frustrated and deal with that. Other times thinking the prosecutor is a total ass and and other and times how many did you flirt with <laughs> i do not recall flirting with any of the prosecutors <laughs> but um but then also trying when when contacted by defense trying to kind of route that you know as i was directed those kinds of requests have to be approved through this process but trying to stay balanced in if defense asks a specific question of hey why can this evidence be tested i can't take that you know that's just not part of lab policy but i could at least send an email to the prosecution saying, I think this would be, uh, you know, this request came in defense and this is what I can do to complete this test. You know, kind of hinting that this part of the testing should be completed as well if it wasn't already all done to begin with. It's, it's, a, it's a hard thing trying to stay neutral and it appears Annie didn't even go that far in trying. Yeah, I mean, all right. So the flirting part aside, that didn't bother me so much because, I mean, you know, fine. I mean, it told me how crazy she was. <laughs> Making I mean, that, up an email? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that that's a whole different thing that, that, that tells me a lot about her, her, the nature of her. She crazy. Okay. Put that aside. <laughs> yes. the, my bigger thing is, all right, so, and I was going to sound a little preachy, but man, I'm, I'm really, I, this is a heartfelt little uh, soapbox to, to our listeners. Look. All of you guys work in forensics, myself included. We love to espouse how neutral we are as forensic scientists. And I'm telling you, that is really an illusion. And it scares me how much of an illusion it is. In fact, we love to think about how neutral we are. But just think about all the environment that we are in and all the attaboys and good jobs and all the – I, like we would get these letters from the uh, the attorney general's office when a big case went down, a big first degree homicide went down. All the forensic scientists involved would get an attaboy good job after testimony, and I would throw them away immediately. It always made me really uncomfortable. I know people that would frame them and put them up and have whole folders where they keep these letters. I'm like, dude, that – I don't know that I would want to be keeping that. If if you're trying to maintain this aura of neutrality, the last thing you want to be considered is on the prosecutor's team. And it's so hard because you feel like you're doing a good job and you know that this evidence is maybe helping put away a really bad person. But it, it isn't neutral. It, 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 in my opinion, this is Glenn's opinion, it's not neutral. And the, the first way you can test to see if your agency is neutral is go ask your chief, your sheriff, or your lab director if you can go work some private cases. <laughs> you will know immediately if your agency is quote-unquote neutral. And law enforcement will tell you, oh, no, 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 no. If you're, You can't work for the dark side. You can't go work defense cases. If your agency allows you to, that's actually – Good evidence they might have a neutral mentality, but I'm telling you that was a that's the easiest litmus test on how neutral your agency is. I uh, and Eric, I, I kept this, and then uh, years ago when I first started in the year 2000, maybe 2001 or so, 
we had a prosecutor come over from a county and give a talk to us, and the title of her presentation was Forensics and Prosecution, something like The Perfect Team. And, and her whole thing was how we're on the same team. That was the title of her presentation. It was the whole theme of her talk was how we are on the same team. And one of our analysts, I, I told props to this guy, raised his hand right away and went, we're not on your team. We are not at all. And she's, no, no, we're on the same team because we have the same goal to administer justice and this. And, and he's like, no, that is not our goal. Have you not looked at our mission statement? It has nothing to do with that. And he kind of got down her throat, and she got all red and embarrassed, and she had a hard time recovering from that. And uh, to this, she never came back and gave another talk. But <laughs> and he he laid into her, and rightfully so, because as we flipped through her presentation, it was all about how you work for us, and when we tell you to analyze stuff, you're going to analyze it because we're trying to make the case. We're the legal experts. We know what evidence we need. Your job, Lab Monkey, is to do these tests that we need yep. to prove this guy is guilty and, and secure conviction and give justice to Minnesotans. And, he, I mean, and that is how they think. But she and, and she really thought we were on her team. Now, the reality is if she, if she didn't have any of those statements and just called us up and said, here's the case. You need to do these tests. This is what I need. We'll, we'll, we're going to do it. And no one's going to be able to tell her no. And she later went on to become a judge in Minnesota. And I, <laughs> I still I, I know her. I, I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast because, I mean, she took a lot of flack for that. But that attitude was 20 years ago, but it hasn't changed. And all of those emails from Dukin, when I was reading them because they're showing them in the documentary, yeah. it was, oh, yeah, this is this is so bad, but it, it is exactly exemplary of this issue, is Annie Dukin was irritated that she had to go testify. And she basically said, look, if they make me come to court, then you need to make sure they get the maximum years of you know this, and I'm going to give such good testimony that he's going to go away forever. It was so much of the, we're in this together, and if I have to leave my lab, we're going to make this person pay. And it's the exact opposite of neutrality, and it's Unfortunately, not uncommon. There are probably listeners listening to us right now talking about this who might be a little uncomfortable. Please take this in the spirit in which it's intended. The more things you can do to show your actual neutrality, working private cases, doing pro bono stuff for Innocence Project, the more things you can put on your resume to show that you are not just a witness for the prosecution – the better you will always look in the future. It's the number one thing I'm so thankful that my agency allowed. And the number one thing that I was so glad I did was work with Bart Epstein and other experts who work defense cases. There's nothing better that you can do to show your actual neutrality. Sure. I get it, right? For forensic scientists out there that work for a police agency, the requests that they that come in are from officers. Your boss's boss's boss wears a uniform and carries a gun. The emails that you get about cases are primarily from from prosecutors. It can definitely be hard, especially in the system that we're in. I guess that just means that we have to try extra hard to maintain that neutrality. Yeah. The, the system that we're in is that <laughs> that we frankly do work for the prosecution. And that's the sad thing is that we kind of do. And we try we try not to, but we do. And I don't know about you, Eric, but 
you you read those emails on screen. You yes. probably looked at some of those emails and went, "Oh, I've seen. I have either. I've seen those exact emails. I've had those emails. I have seen those emails." And I don't. I imagine list or viewers of the Netflix documentary watching that went, "Oh my God, that's terrible." I think they'd be shocked to know that no, actually, that's routine. It's not terrible. It's actually commonplace. Uh, I don't know if I'd go as far as some of those emails, but they, they probably handpicked the worst examples. So I, 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 I can I can see that uh, that probably most of them align with what is standard communication between forensic scientists and prosecutors. Yeah. Is there any other solution to this besides you know the the actual forensic scientists trying to maintain their neutrality in the existing system? Well, yeah. hmm. you know, we talked about blinding and these other things and the usefulness of that. I mean, you can have someone as a case manager who's doing those communications, but they tend to be the analyst, of course. Like you said, you had a motive. I mean, you contacted them for sake of efficiency, but then you end up getting sometimes other information or certain attitudes coming from them that now puts you in a position of being accused of potential bias, whether or not it's an, you know a fair accusation or not. Yeah, you you weren't. I mean, you've now put yourself in the position of jeopardy because of the, those emails coming from either the cop or the attorney. Yeah, we, we we've seen. Heck, we just talked recently about the Houston Forensic Science Center, which is you know, really removed from you know, being under the purview of the police department, but. Um, I mean, does that even really fully separate the the forensic scientist from the prosecutor, and that that such a close relationship? Does it, it seems like it's still there because the the prosecutors, the police officers, are the ones requesting the work. It still doesn't seem like maybe the defense attorneys have that sort of access where they can also put in those kinds of requests. Uh, well, again, my experience personally is no. I mean, it has to come from law enforcement in most publicly funded laboratories. Yeah. So, eh. I, some laboratories will say they have that as an option, and they might theoretically, but then they put so many hurdles or hoops in place that defense end up not being able to make those requests. That's a, I mean, it's a difficult problem. Well, all right. So moving on, since we're not going to solve this problem tonight, um, right? So uh, how about before we get to the next part? Let me talk about one other legal issue. Sure. That goes along with this and i think you'll find this interesting this wasn't at all in the documentary but i it's worth bringing up so all right so listeners if you have ever given a report before and you are um on maternity leave or you've got that trip to tahiti planned or hawaii and you're not available to testify and the prosecution makes a big deal out of no no we need you here to testify you're gonna have to cancel your trip you're gonna have to do this Uh. and you get pissed and angry and you're like why not well hold on well i've got this report or i've got a verifier or technical lead or someone who can go for me Uh, Guess what? (laughs) Actually, this all has to do with Massachusetts and a drug case. So if you're not aware of a little history here, this is all fascinating to me. And very quickly, back in the day, you used to be able to send a a report. You could just give a report, and the report stood on its own. In fact, in the emails, it's interesting because Dukin actually says they should just take my report. They should just be able to take my report, and she gets very mad that she has to go and testify. I mean, you saw that in the emails, right, Eric? Oh, yeah. She's very upset about the whole testimony process. I, right. never under- I, I like testifying. 
Right. Anyway. Why, why won't they just take my report? Right. Well, in fact, it actually was commonplace in Massachusetts that if you had a drug lab report that was used in lieu of testimony, but then that changed. So they actually didn't used to testify, and then they had to testify. And there was this – there was this case in uh, Washington called Crawford, and Crawford kind of started everything. Crawford changed the rules and said, you know what? According to the Sixth Amendment, which is a federal right, or the Fourteenth Amendment, which says all states have to apply your federal rights, so six four, it'll be a reference to the Sixth or Fourteenth Amendment. According to the Sixth Amendment, the accused has a right to confront the accuser. That's a basic right that all Americans have. If you were accused of a crime, you have a right to confront the person accusing you. And by confront, you have a right to due process, you have a right to a fair trial, and you have a right to effectively cross-examine that person who is the accuser. Well, the state is the accuser. The chemist is part of the accusation. So if there is an accusation that you had cocaine, you, according to your federal rights, you have a right to effectively confront them and cross-examine them. And a report used to be sufficient. But then the Supreme Court ruled in 2009 in a case called Melendez-Diaz, and we can put a link to it on on our our site but it's the Melendez Diaz case M E L E N D E Z D A sorry D I A Z versus Massachusetts out of 2009 this went up to the Supreme Court after going through all the Massachusetts court because it was a federal rights case and in the Melendez Diaz case it was Justice Scalia who's fairly conservative. I mean, he's a fairly conservative judge. And he said, oh, yeah, these reports are not good enough. You have to be able to confront the person who did the work. And, you know, people argued, well, no, I mean, these reports are done by these crime labs. They're certified. They're experts. You don't need the forensic analyst to show up and testify to a report. The report should be good enough. And this is all – remember, this is before the scandal. So all the scandal came out in 2012. So it's 2009. And this is what Scalia wrote. And this is a, a quote. I'm going to give Carrie Hall credit here. She pointed this quote out to me. It's an amazing quote. So what they wrote was basically we don't care that they have this signed report. You have to be able to confront the analyst because it's the analyst who did the work and that's who gets confronted, not the report. And so the, the, the Supreme Court said, the analysts who swore the affidavits provided testimony against Melendez-Diaz, and they are therefore subject to confrontation. We would reach the same conclusion if all analysts always possessed the scientific acumen of Madame Curie and the veracity of Mother Teresa. In other words, we don't care how good of a scientist you are or how truthful you might be. You still have to come to court and be confronted. And I, I, I think that's a really interesting case because that – and there are other cases that came after and basically they kept reaffirming, yes, the original analyst who did the work is the one who must be confronted. And so in this case, keeping in mind that for thousands and thousands of cases, all of her reports were just being dry labbed. And there was no chance of confrontation, 
none. I mean, because she wasn't going to be called to court. Right. And and it's in Massachusetts that Melinda's Diaz actually happened that they still said, no, no, you, you have to be able to cross-examine that person. And that's exactly what happened. I and mean, they were they were right three years before it happened that, yeah, the person doing the report is the real weak link, not the report itself. That's crazy. It was that was just even just a couple of years beforehand, fairly close. Yeah, it's it's amazing how prescient they were about exactly what was about to happen in that state. One of the quotes early on in the documentary made me kind of really think. I want to read it to you, Glenn, and, and get your opinion on this. This is from Heather Harris, who was the drug chemist that they brought in as a consultant mm. for the show. Yeah, uh, she kind of looked her up on LinkedIn. Uh, she worked for a county lab in Texas for a couple of years, and for a private forensic chemistry lab, and now does uh, consultation work mostly. So this was a quote that she said kind of early on in the show, and it it made me kind of really think about a couple of things. So it relates to science overall, but then also the topic that you just brought up. She said, "If I'm the person who did that testing, if I'm the person who signed that report." The defendant really should be checking into my credibility. It doesn't yep. necessarily have anything to do with the science of what I'm doing. It has to do with me as a person and the credibility of me. And the idea being, I think, if I don't seem credible, maybe you should dig a little deeper and look at the testing I conducted and so forth. Yeah. I saw her give a talk before and it was really, really good. She gave really good advice to attorneys and everything that she said resonated. And uh, yeah, I I 100% agree with that. And so did the Supreme Court. So I feel like I'm in good company there. (laughs) So when I first heard that, I was kind of torn. Just I mean, in a documentary, you don't necessarily get the whole context of a conversation, but it seemed to be downplaying the science a bit over a, a person's credibility. It, it it's hard to mess up this science. That's I mean, true. it really is. I mean, even a laboratory that had deplorable practices got it right ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time. That's true. So, so maybe depending on what's being reported, the credibility is always still this major thing. But it is further emphasized, say, in drug chemistry, where the science of it is so clear and so difficult to screw up unless you're dry labbing or high on crack. Or contaminating or other issues or could this have been more of a marginal amount or a trace amount? And especially in trace cases, could you have introduced that somehow? Not every drug case is the same and it's different when you've got a gram of something versus a non-visible amount that is still detecting very low levels of methamphetamine but is still considered a possession case. Interesting. And in, in that kind of case, your credibility and the practices, your cleanliness, your thorough um, – that actually does become more of an issue than the actual science. Okay. So it may be in some cases they are equally you know, really high-level important, but sometimes you know, one may be emphasized over the other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there are just certain practices that still exist in drug chemistry that are very surprising. They they generally don't have limits of detection. I mean, that's surprising to me. Uh, some of the validations are weak in various areas. They in in some cases they will combine bindles together and and like they'll take ten different bindles, mix them together, and then test that like a homogenization test. I mean that and that happens in some federal cases and that's really shocking to me um, because you know if only one of the bindles had drugs and the other nine didn't, 
you're now saying all 10 basically did by testing them. You know, this huh. sort of um, uh, aggregate approach. It's, I mean, there are certain things that they do that are really questionable that they've been doing for a long time and no one has ever called them out. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I hadn't heard of that. I'd heard of the sampling where you, you if you have 10 bindles and they all basically look the same and in the same case, just pick one, test that one and, you know, describe that in your report. But... um but they use a statistical confidence interval, which yeah. I'm fine with because then there are certain limits to it and you know they can test you know certain amounts of bindles to make an inference by the larger population. I'm actually fine with that kind of procedure. Right. right. I mean even in a, a bale of marijuana, you, you're testing just this little piece you know, and, and you're making an assumption that, that the entire bale is one thing and it's not just – this one little piece that you're putting under the microscope, that's marijuana and the rest of it just happens to be something else. But I hadn't heard of the whole mixing together of the different bindles before uh, of that yeah, concept. It, there's cer certain cases where it, when it's acceptable to do that, I, I think it's in quant cases. Sure. And I, I can't – there's a there's a technical term for it that's escaping me. But it, it's like basically aggregation. All right. So, so with Annie Dukin, there's not as many of the questions that come up. Because it kind of comes out pretty quickly that she was dry labbing. Uh, she is charged with evidence tampering and is sentenced to three to five years. But at least initially, she's singled up out as the problem in the lab and not that there was a problem in this larger lab system. So there's this, now this push to get basically any case that she has her name on thrown out. Because, I mean, again, you don't know. Is this the case that she actually did a real test on or is this just one of the cases that she signed her name to without actually doing a test? And there's really no way to know that. The immediate thought that jumps to mind is, well, if her name's on it and someone got convicted of a drug charge, they, they need to get out. Like that just needs to be – that case needs to be thrown out. Uh, and side note, if they were just convicted of a drug charge. True. It, because, I mean, often if you have drugs and guns, uh, the gun charge should, should still hold. True, true. If, if, if you know, in their arrest uh, of having suspected drugs, you know, they threw a punch at a cop, then you're still going to be in, in jail for that, you know, that assault. Right. So identify the cases that are specific possession cases. Exactly. Well, the what the documentary shows here is this now kind of hand-wringing by prosecutors and judges and the news media and the public that are all now worried, oh my God, are they going to release literally thousands of, of criminals onto the streets? There's going to be a crime wave. Right. And it then takes years of lawsuits and trials and hearings not to finally resolve everything, but just to get a list of the cases that were affected. They make the point of saying, I should be able just to go in and push a button and see every case that Annie Dukin uh, touched. And as people who worked in crime labs, absolutely. That is easy to go in and hit a button and get a list of every case that that analyst had ever touched. Uh, but it took, again, years of lawsuits to finally even get that list together, which ended up being about 24,000 cases. It, it was clear that prosecution was not being necessarily very forthcoming here. Yeah. And then again, and these are mostly low-level, nonviolent cases. This isn't what the prosecutors and media had feared of, of just this crime wave as people get released, but mainly possession, nonviolent cases uh, that uh, 
that were involved in this in this whole scandal. Um, and then it finally takes again. This is 2012 when this first hits. Finally, in April of 2017, the state supreme court issues a ruling for prosecutors to either dismiss every affected case or to say that they can get reconvictions without her analysis. And 21,000 cases are dismissed right then. Yeah, that and, and that's the most in history. I mean, it really is mind-boggling how many cases that it took. 20, oh, 21,000. That's uh, it's staggering. All right. So the final part of the story is kind of the journey that the defense attorneys take as they try to uh, get their clients out of uh, being incarcerated, have their charges dismissed for the cases involving Sonia Farrakh. Now, again, like I just said, it's pretty clear really early on for Annie Dukan that anything she touched was problematic because she was dry lighting. She wasn't actually doing the work for huge numbers, a huge percentage of her cases. However, with Sonia Farrakh, she was actually still doing all of the work. She was actually running the samples and producing results, but she was just on meth and then on crack. Completely kind of different problem to deal with here. And like I said uh, last episode, the Attorney General Martha Coakley said there are only two samples affected. And uh, here's a quote from uh, Sonia Farrakh when she finally goes on the stand and testifies in front of a grand jury. And this comes back to that shame on us thing you'd mentioned about the... Uh, uh, about the defense attorneys. I never had fellow workers question my work. I never had a defendant have their defense lawyer question directly my analysis. Most people that get arrested on suspected drugs know whether they had drugs or not. If I ever had called anything... And, and that's not true. I mean, we, we found that yep. routinely. I think it was close to like 8% or 9% of our submissions at the lab that were suspected to have been drugs, you know, tested quote-unquote positive field tests by officers who may not have known what they were doing, yeah. uh, were routinely not drugs or a different drug than they suspected. And it happened all the time. If I had ever called anything positive and they knew it was negative, they at any point could have asked for it to be reanalyzed. I never had any piece questioned. Yeah. Uh, it's not surprising at all to me. Again, uh, attorneys generally give a pass to drug chemistry and just go, well, there's nothing here. Let's move on to those subjective sciences like fingerprints and handwriting. I mean, she's justifying things, obviously, for herself here. But then and also, no, they can't just have something be reanalyzed. You know, these, <laughs> you can't expect some homeless guy to be able to come up with the funds to bring in a private analyst to retest <laughs> yeah. the drugs. Right, right. Good point. Initially, so now right away, when there's this initial work done, there's these two cases, no one goes back and looks to see what other cases may have been affected beyond these two. So these two defense attorneys, Luke Ryan and Jared Olenoff, they start to fight, questioning the admissibility of all her reports from past cases and looking for anything they can find. Uh, they ask for disclosure, and everyone listening involved in forensics knows about disclosure, the Brady rule. If there's potential exculpatory evidence, prosecution is required to hand that over to the defense. So in the when she's arrested, uh, Sonia Farrakh is arrested, in her trunk, there's all sorts of stuff. I mean, her car is just a mess, and there's just loads of stuff. And uh, understandable, it's, it is a pain in the ass to collect evidence from a car that looks like that. However, in the 
police report, it says that her trunk has assorted lab paperwork. And these defense attorneys, that is all they're ever given is this list of evidence that was collected saying assorted lab paperwork. They asked to actually see the evidence to get more details on it. And they are, uh, and they are told that that is not possible. Uh, Chris Foster. Well, they're told that they were already given it. Well, that too, that, that here, this is everything. There's no smoking gun here. There is no other evidence that relates to your case. This is everything that there is. And, yeah, and, 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 I, and I get that because having done crime scene, I might lump things together. But effectively, when they were asking to see the evidence. Yes, that's the thing. They that, wanted to see it. Yeah, at that point, they're really it should have been a no brainer. Yeah, you can come to our office, and you're welcome to take a look at what was in you know the the envelopes. Or if it was you know easy enough to just PDF it, copy yeah. it, and send it over. I mean, that could have been done too, depending on how quote unquote voluminous it would have been. But yeah, I mean that that that's so bizarre to me that they would have said, well, you know, you you got you've got it already. You don't need to see anything else. So the there's a new, relatively new prosecutor with the AG's office named Chris Foster, and she wouldn't let them see it. So they go and, and, and suspiciously assigned this big, big case. <laughs> I mean, they they made a little thing about it that that she's the C, very new not the A team, person. not the B team, but the C team. <laughs> so Chris Foster goes in front of a judge, Judge Jeffrey Kinder, and says that all the evidence from Farak is irrelevant to their case. He says, no, 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 I get to decide if they're, if it's relevant or not. So he demands that she goes back and look. She writes a letter saying that all the evidence has been disclosed to the defense attorneys. And for, and Judge Kinder then denies the motion that uh, Luke Ryan and Jared Olenoff actually see this evidence. And he rules that the affected cases that Sonia Farrakh worked only go back to July of 2012. And she's arrested in January 2013. Uh, only going back to July of 2012, was there any, you know, maybe question if you were convicted on work that she had done prior to July, 2012, you're still in jail. Uh, you can't get out. So, uh, this guy, Luke Ryan, he continues to fight to see the evidence. Initially he's told you can't see it because it's an active investigation. After Farak is convicted, he says, okay, now let me see it. And he is, uh, finally, uh, allowed to see the actual evidence 21 months after her arrest and all his clients are back in prison. So he finds these forms in the evidence, right? He's allowed finally to see it, you know, under supervision, just like you described, Glenn. And there's these forms, these medical mental health forms where she'd been documenting her drug use when she used drugs, how much, how, you know, how frequently, because she had been trying to get clean and going through a drug rehabilitation program. So he finds that this, this situation I laid out last episode, taking LSD and crack on the same day, that she would did that the exact day that she wrote the report and did the test for uh, a client that he had uh, and had brought up on challenge and he had been sent back to jail because it was before July of 2012. It was just, it was literally the smoking gun that he had asked to see and the prosecutors had completely stonewalled him and uh, denied for him to see that evidence. So you say, Glenn, well, maybe there's just this pile of paperwork. You can't go through this whole pile. You, maybe she didn't know that there was a smoking gun sitting right there that she denied existed. So then this defense attorney gets through a, an investigation, eventually happens. He requests to see these emails that had come up in relation to the, to the investigation. And those forms listing off the days that she had done crack 
are included in emails that these prosecutors have been sending back and forth to each other saying, you know, don't show them this. It just the most blatant yeah. violation of uh, disclosure that I, I can even conceive of. Yeah, uh, especially directly related to his client. Yes. You know, I, I, I can't remember. Were they trying to hide behind some of it being uh, private medical, like HIPAA stuff? I, I I can't remember their argument for not disclosing it. I was just – I think I was still so shocked at this part of the, the series. He, he did have to get a you know final approval to release it after getting initial approval to view the evidence because of you know health uh, medical privacy stuff he had to then after seeing it and seeing how how it affected so many tens of thousands of people getting final approval to get it released but i don't remember them having the prosecutors having necessarily an excuse about that you know just basically they knew it was there and they misled the judge and yeah and, and, and didn't a, yeah. one like one of the emails like call him a name or something basically call him an a-hole or something yep. And uh, can you imagine the satisfaction of having her on the stand and yes. having her read that email? I mean, that was just – I mean, that's cherry on the cake. Unnecessary, but that must have felt so good. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even imagine how good that must have felt. That's And that's, that's exactly what happens. He eventually gets these prosecutors on the stand where he can ask them about that and ask them, all right, why did you do this? Who told you to do this? And as soon as that name gets brought up, that's the next name on the on the list of, of witnesses. Just like I saw in the St. Paul case, it just kept going up the chain, up the chain, up the chain. So after these these hearings with all these members of the AG's office, these state troopers called in to testify about withholding these evidence, they're asked these questions. When did you know about these mental health worksheets? That When did you know that they were in the car? When did you know that they were collected? When did you know that they were not turned over to defense? So Chris Foster, again, the the AG prosecutor that had been assigned to this, she then testified on the stand that she had not reviewed a single document in the Farrakh case, despite writing a letter to Judge Kinder saying that every document had been disclosed to defense. Mm. So the judge now in this new uh, hearing, Judge Carey, issued a, a decision saying that Chris Foster and her immediate supervisor, I believe, uh, Ann Kaczmarek, had committed a, quote, fraud upon the court. Yeah, that's harsh, too. I mean, that's, that's a judge kind of issue in the slam down there. I mean, that's, that's pretty bad to be a prosecutor with that kind, of, uh, that kind of phrase on you. And yet, again, for the severity of it, there's no, like, criminal action. Nope. I mean, again, prosecutors are kind of immune from this. They can kind of get called out for these actions but there isn't sort of a hey this is illegal or you know i mean people spent time in jail i i mean obviously there can and shall be and will be lawsuits and settlements and such but you know years of people's lives yeah. lost because of this so in 2018 finally more, tens of thousands of more cases that sonia farak had worked were also dismissed so that's kind of where things stand right now, at least for the documentary, where it kind of wrapped up with uh, how the defense attorney went through their process to get this information out. It took a lot more to dig out all of those uh, overturned convictions for the Sonia Farrakh case than it did with Annie Dukin. And uh, definitely hats off to, to those defense attorneys that kept being told no and kept digging anyway until it was, it was finally all you know, really brought to light. 
Uh, I'm sure, like you said just a minute ago, that there's still there still may be some uh, some trials, some lawsuits, and and maybe even some other convictions that still need to be reviewed in, in all of these cases. Yeah, I mean, we we talked about this in other episodes, like making a murderer, where I mean, uh, the American jurisprudence system, and I'm quoting Sarah Chu here from the Innocence Project, is simply not designed to handle post conviction. I mean, there's a lot of things that you're afforded, a lot of rights you're afforded up front, but once you are convicted. The system is not designed to let people out. This system is not designed very well for appeals and for getting people help and assistance when kind of need it most in these sorts of cases. And it's just it's the same story over and over and over. It's not a oh well you know if he's convicted he, he well he should just be able to get his case overturned and they'll new evidence and they'll rehear it and fix it. No, it's just the opposite. It's it's incredibly difficult once a person is convicted to clean clean that slate and going back to that first quote at the very beginning of our last episode and the very beginning of the, of the documentary series this was not just a scandal about bad science but a scandal about bad law and i think that really comes out clearly in the documentary of yes there were absolutely mistakes made by uh, dukin and farak and their own separate issues of dry labbing and uh, being a drug addict. And there were extensive issues in the lab systems that they worked in that allowed that to happen and compounded it by having it happen for such a very long time. But then in my eye, and and, uh, and please you know, disagree if, if you do, this really exploded and became even bigger because I think the the hiding of everything that had actually happened by the prosecutors and the AG's office there was 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 a bigger issue than the initial problems at the labs themselves. Yeah, it, it's actually the thing that I, I said in the other episode. It's the thing that surprised me the most. It's the thing I heard the least about. Yeah, and people can have you know people can be weak and make poor choices. And yeah, dry labbing we know exists. But boy, the conscious covering up of those kinds of things, uh, you know, especially knowledge of it or uh, – I mean just how that whole thing was handled by the AG's office, that was actually the thing that was really most shocking to me. So yeah, I, I sort of – I, I, I don't disagree with you, Eric. It, it's the thing that made me go, oh, this the, – the person whose mission is to seek justice yeah. is the person who's causing the injustice. I mean, in in, in the Cam case, it was the same kind of thing too. I mean, it 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 really disturbs me when the seekers of justice are the ones causing injustice. It's a common theme we've explored in some of these cases, and it it is really disturbing how very powerful the government is, and when they have their sights set on you, there's so little. They have infinite resources and so little that you can do. Yeah, It, it is scary to be up against something that big. You know, and that's why uh, when something like this goes wrong, it, it is up to to those people to to realize that the that justice needs to be served and that uh, hiding the extent of it, minimizing the extent of it, uh, is not in the interest of justice. Yeah. All right. So we're super long here, like Glenn said last time. If you're interested in some classes that uh, he has coming up. Uh, go to EliteForensicServices.com to get those details uh, about stuff maybe after we all get released from the quarantine uh, that uh, 
they'll be on the schedule here very quickly. Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com is how to contact him. Eric at RayForensics.com is how to contact me. Our podcast website is DoubleLoopPodcast.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DoubleLoopPod. And uh, anything we say uh, is our opinion and doesn't represent necessarily those people we work for. So with that, talk to you guys all here soon and stay safe out there. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay sane. 